Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa zil wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So, tonight we start a new book, insha'Allah. So we can read Surah Al-Fatiha with the intention of it being uh, a blessed gathering and insha'Allah a means of benefit for us and our families. And that Allah gives us the tawfiq to be able to finish it and to be able to do it properly and to be able to act upon it, inshallah. Bismillah. So we're going to do the. Assalamu the spiritual aphorisms of Ibn Atala secondary, Rahimahullah. And so I'll say some opening remarks to introduce that before we start the text, inshaAllah. So, <coughs> first and foremost, the hikam, the hikam, the plural of hikmah, the spiritual aphorisms, they're sometimes translated as, sometimes they're translated as Sufi aphorisms. Um, of Ibn Atta'ala uh, deal with issues of spirituality, obviously. They're spiritual aphorisms, they deal with issues of spirituality. And so by way of introduction to that concept, before we get into the book and the author and everything else, one of the things that we always talk about is the Hadith of Jibreel salam, as being central to how we understand the religion. And when Jibreel salam, asked the Prophet them after Iman and Islam, what is Ihsan? And he responded to him by telling him, It is to uh, that you worship Allah as though you see him, and if you do not see him, you know that he sees you. And uh, the scholars have said that that relates to a underst- understanding inside of our our heart. Like that's not something that can be. It's not a. It's not a cognitive frame. Like yeah, you. It's not just the knowledge of knowing that okay yeah Allah sees me Allah is a samir basir, but it's to really feel inside of our hearts that Allah sees us. And uh, that has many, many different layers of understanding and many different levels of comprehension. And the knowledge that comes out of that question is sometimes referred to as Ihsan, sometimes referred to as Tazkiyah, more commonly probably referred to as Tasawwuf. Uh, and all of those you can translate in various ways. Uh, we also always mention that the, then the, at the end of the hadith, Jibreel salam leaves the Prophet wasallam asks Sayyidina Umar, do you know who that was? And he says, Allah and his messenger know better. And he says, that was Jibreel. He came to you to teach you your deen. So the Islam, Iman, Ihsan, and then end of times components are all essential components to our religion and how we understand our religion. And they are understood in relation to one another. So Ihsan, for example, cannot be understood without Islam and Iman. Or if you want to call it Tasawwuf, then Tasawwuf cannot be understood without Aqidah and Fiqh. It has to be limited by these things. Um, But nonetheless, it is there. And it was accepted and taught and understood 
as being part of the religion for all of Muslim history. That's what, there's not really an exception on that. There are debates on what exactly it means and what are its limits and what, what if certain practices are acceptable or not and stuff like that, you'll find debates. But on the overall concept of is there something called tasawwuf or is there something called tazkiyah or is there something called ihsan or is there something called zuhd, you won't find any debate on that. Um, the early practice of, of tasawwuf was basically you find people who are specialized in this knowledge and you stay with them and you learn from them. And that was practiced by the imams of aqidah and fiqh just as it was practiced by other people. So there's number of narrations, for example, where um, Imam Ahmed will talk about an hadith and muhasibi. Um, and there's a number of narrations, there's stuff that talks about Abu Hanifa going to Imam Jafar al-Sadiq and saying that had it not been for the time that he spent with Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, then you know, Nu'man would have been done for. There's many, many narrations from all of these people that talk about that. Um, so we're not going to get into that too much. Maybe that's another time and place. Suffice it to say that the idea that rectifying one's heart and improving one's experiential relationship with God is one that is firmly founded in the religion from the beginning of the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the companions and so on up to today. Um, and again, that has to be understood in light of aqidah and fiqh. So if someone is making a claim in, in, uh, in the world of spirituality and it cannot, and it goes against some principle that we have in aqidah, then we're not going to accept that. If someone's saying that you need to do something in order to, you need to do this particular practice in order to come closer to Allah and you can't really like, where is this practice coming from? Does it, does it have any relationship to the fiqh or not? If it, doesn't, if it can't be justified in the fiqh, in the sharia, then it's not going to be acceptable, right? So it's, uh, I think sometimes because of the excesses that are done in the name of tasawwuf, which are many, which are many, many, many excesses done in the name of tasawwuf, then we reject the whole thing. And uh, that's not really a good method. Uh, when we were coming back from the Gambia and we spent the night in Istanbul, the morning that we were coming back to LA, we had the opportunity to attend a class with uh, a, f a famous scholar in, in Turkey and it happened to be the first class in a text that he was teaching on tasawwuf and spirituality and stuff so we got to listen to the introduction that he was giving on the topic it was pretty interesting and there were some things that he said um, maybe that I can point out uh, so he said like if we have aqidah and we have fiqh and we have tasawwuf then one of the questions is like how do we come to understand those things, right? What is our, what is our method for, for how we determine what those things are? And in the case of fiqh and aqidah, we understand that and we know that based on reason and based on revelation. So we have the text from the Quran and the Sunnah and we apply some sort of reason to it and we come to conclusions on beliefs and on practices, right? But he said when it comes to spirituality, uh, spirituality is largely experiential, right? Like it's not, it's it's that statement about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu that Abu Bakr didn't exceed, exceed everyone else because of his fasting and his prayer, but he exceeded everyone because of something that was in his heart. So like how do you really define that, right? There's an element to that that's very much experiential. And so he says that um, 
there's a portion of Tazkiyah and Tasawwuf and stuff that is you know through reason and you know through revelation because obviously the reason and revelation gives us the practices you pray and it has an effect on your on, on staying away from bad things and you do charity and it purifies you and so on and so forth there's all kinds of things from the sunnah of the Prophet them that give us uh, guidance in that regard but he said the other the third component actually by which you know kind of like things to do here is 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 what they call keshf which is like some sort of insight that a person who has gone through that experience and gone through that path they might have some sort of insight so it's not necessarily that it's like it's uh it's directly in the quran or the sunnah but it's like someone might go to say you go to someone who's more experienced they're more knowledgeable and stuff and you tell them so and so i'm having a hard time controlling my anger what do you advise me and they talk to you a little bit and they say you should do xyz i don't know what it might be maybe it's like every time you get angry say astaghfirullah 10 times for example let's just say they give you that right that's not directly in quran or in sunnah like there's nothing in the sunnah that says when you get angry say astaghfirullah 10 times but that person through their experience and so on and so forth they might have an understanding that says that this is going to work for this person so that's that's like uh, so you have things in in the books of spirituality they're not always directly from the quran and the sunnah but they're not against the quran and the sunnah which is the important concept right um and then the other thing that he said that i thought was interesting was that um the method for getting somewhere in uh, the other two sciences is reason, essentially. Like, what is the thing that you use in order to gain a deeper understanding of aqidah? You use your your intellect. What is the thing that you use to understand deeper in fiqh? You use your intellect to understand the rulings and so on and so forth. We said the thing that you use to gain a deeper understanding in tasawwuf is tazkiyah, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't heard that uh, split before. Because oftentimes when you read in tazkiyah, tazkiyah is very external it's very like you should stay away from anger you should have hope you should have optimism all these different things and these are like some of the hadith about it these are some of the practices that you can do but those things that are external are not the actual goal okay do you understand what i'm saying so if it says for example you're supposed to control your anger and then you have all these hadith about like saying and sitting down if you're standing and so on and so forth the goal is not to just do those things, right? Like the goal is to work against ourselves and to control our anger and so on and so forth till we can get to a point where our anger is no longer defeating us in that way. So that's the tezkiyah then takes us to a point that's beyond it, which is the actual like the essence of, of the spiritual stuff is not just to do the spiritual practices, it's to actually feel something in one's heart, to actually gain some sort of uh, happiness or joy or gratitude or contentment or whatever it might be. Okay, so this is uh, just a little bit about Ihsan. Uh, I don't want to belabor it too much because I think that it's kind of like maybe another time, but like I said, I, I don't think it's like sometimes we get caught up on words and stuff. Um, this, the, the essence of what we're talking about is an is a known reality that the Prophet them had a certain type of relationship with Allah. The big companions had a certain type of relationship with Allah that other people didn't have. They were still good people. They just didn't have the same type of relationship that these people had. Right? So
whatever you want to call it, argue about it, whatever. It doesn't matter. Definition of Tuskia, what would be a good uh, uh let me see if there's one here. These things are like, there's a lot of different arguments on the definitions. But Tezkiah, I mean, a non-technical definition is Tezkiah refers to the process of purifying oneself. Because, you know, Tezekah, if you Zekah something, then you purify it. Like Zekah comes from the same root and so on. So, Qada Aflaha Man Zekaha is that the person who purifies their heart, they, they, um, they are successful, right? But the soul, if there's all kinds of arguments about what does it actually mean? Does it come from wool because it's suf? Does it come from safa because it's pure? Does it come from like all these different kinds of things? And actually what one, one sheikh said I thought was interesting was that even the name itself is part of kind of like the thing because a big part of tasawwuf is that a person doesn't make claims about themselves. They don't make claims about the things that they know, the things that... They don't make claims, and even like when you go to the word itself, you can't really claim what it is. It's, there's it, there's a reality to it that's hard to, to hard to define. And they used to say that in the uh, in the early part of Islam, tasawwuf was a reality without a name. You know, they didn't really call it tasawwuf until maybe hundred years or so. Uh, in that, you know, it wasn't like the Prophet ﷺ didn't give it that name, right? But so it was a reality without a name, and then it became a name without a reality. The people started talking about it and doing it, and st- you know, making all these books about it, and so on and so forth. But the reality of it was gone. Um, so in any case, that's uh, a little bit about that. The author of this work is Ibn Atta'ala, a secondary. Ibn Atta'ala, a secondary. Ibn Atta'ala is. Um, uh, secondary is Alexandria He's from Alexandria originally In Egypt He's buried though in Cairo uh, He was Maliki in his madhab Everyone in the pre-modern period And in the modern period Except for a small contingency Will generally be known Which madhab they are So all of the previous ulama It was known which madhab they were um, So Ibn Atta'ala was Maliki He was known to be a faqih In the Maliki school so he was um, very, very knowledgeable in the school. He even taught Maliki fiqh in Al-Azhar in his time. Um, trying to look for his birth date. But uh, I don't see it. But he died in 709, ta'ala, after Hijra. 709 after Hijra, so roughly 700 years ago. Um... And you know, as usual with like the people of knowledge, his fa- his actually he came from a family of scholarship, so he studied with the people of knowledge in his time. He was known by his com- by his peers. He taught in Al Azhar as a Maliki fiqh teacher again, as I said. فتولى التدريس في أكبر الجامعات الإسلامية في ذلك العصر وهي الجامعة الأزهر الشريف ومن هنا كثرت شهادات العلماء له بالفضل والتقدم. So like he was well known in his time. Um, he wasn't like some unknown person, and even up to now, like his uh, his grave is very well known. It was recently, like recently, as in I think in the last fifty years, it was like renovated and stuff to make more more uh, just presentable. There's a masjid there and things, and uh, for the Hanafis in the house, and Kamal ibn Humam is also buried there in the same place with him. 
because in Kamal, in Kamal ibn Humam is, he wrote probably the most famous commentary on the Hidayah of al Malghinani, which is like one of the most important books in the Hanafi school. So Ibn Humam was, and he was also uh, a Hadith scholar as well. So when he was, uh, it was his wish that he be buried next to Ibn Atta'ala. So he's actually buried in that same place. It's a nice place to go if you're ever in Egypt, try to find it. It's like in the bottom of the hills of Muqattam, that's what they call it. So Ibn Atta'ala is buried there, Al-Kamal Ibn Humam is buried there, uh, Ibn Abi Jamra is buried there, he was a famous Hadith scholar. Um, uh, I think an Aiz ibn Abdul Salam might be buried there too. A Shatibi, the Qari, is buried close by there. Um, and then, like down the street, a bunch of other people are buried. Imam Shafi'i, Layth ibn Sa'ad, Zawiyat al Malikiyah, like some of the students of Imam Malik, Ibn Hajar Asqanani, Suyuti, all of them are like <laughs> generally in the same, uh, same area. May Allah have mercy on all of them, Ajma'in. Uh, the commentary that I have here There's many many commentaries Like this book is probably At least in Egypt I can say That this book is Probably the most commonly taught work On spirituality Amongst like between between the scholars Like if you're finding scholars Teaching spirituality Usually they're teaching this book They don't usually teach the Ihya Because the Ihya is just huge Right They might teach What Ustad Fuad is teaching on Wednesday That's uh, also pretty common Bidayat and Hidayah The beginning of guidance But this is also Very very commonly taught um, So the commentary that I have Is from Sheikh Abdul Majid uh, Abdul Majid Shurnubi Who was also from the scholars of Azhar From Shurnub Um And You know He's relatively recent actually He died in 1348 Rahimahullah. So like less than a hundred years ago. He died thirteen forty eight. because uh, we're in what? Fourteen forty one. So thirteen forty eight is less than a hundred years. Uh, and he was also known in his time. We won't go over that too much. So this is the book is called Hikam. Hikam is very it's a very interesting book. There's not a whole lot of books that are very similar to it. Because generally, you know, like this, this, the way that Islamic studies writing goes oftentimes is like, here's the top, it's very structured. Here's the topic, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and this is your evidence, and this is the category, and this is the other category, and like very, very structured type thing, right? Um, and Ibn Atta'ala's hikam are not really like that at all. And they barely have any reference to hadith, they barely have any reference to the Quran. And they're as if like, Here's someone who spent his life in understanding the religion. And here's someone who spent his life in trying to better himself and to deepen his relationship with Allah. And now he's giving you like one line sentences. Most of them are one line that are like really, really he heavy duty stuff. Some of them are pretty like, okay, I get it. And you keep moving. But some of them are really, really heavy. Uh, you can find the translation online, by the way. If you look for Ibn Atta'ala, there's a website. I think it's called like... Matheson Trust or something like that And you'll find an Arabic PDF Of the, just the list of the Hikam and you'll find the English one too uh, It's a pretty decent translation um, So yeah, so he'll give you Like the Hikmah, it doesn't really It does follow, there is a logic to its order But sometimes People didn't really understand the logic To its order, so like there's works that came Later on that reorganized them
but like all the ones that have to do with knowledge in one category and all the ones that have to do with dua in one category and so on but that wasn't the way that he organized it he organized it so like each piece you can kind of see how it builds on what came before it so we'll, we're going to do it in the order that he put it in because I prefer uh, that we do it that way there is an English translation that's quite good with commentary called the book of wisdoms and uh, it's like black and fat and has the commentary of Molana uh, Gengohi. Um, I forget the first name, maybe Abdullah. And there's some really good introduction material in there too, in that book. So, uh, but that one is on the, it's it's with the categorization. It's, it's not on the original order, so you'd kind of have to jump around a little bit. There's other ones with translation too, but that one. What's nice about it is its commentary is really simple. The English one it has like a really simple commentary. It doesn't go into a whole lot of deep stuff, whereas some of the other commentaries are really, really heavy. Like Sidi Ahmed Zarouk has about fifteen commentaries on the Hikam, <coughs> because everywhere he would go, he would write a new commentary. Like he would teach it again, and he would have a new level that he's teaching it at. And you, they're actually different. They're <laughs> they're not they're not the same. Because I have, um, I think I have like three of them, maybe two, two or three of them. And you pick them, like one of them I can read, it's pretty straightforward. The other one, actually, last time I tried to read it, I really couldn't understand very much. So I figured, you know, give it a few years and try to come back again. <laughs> but some, some of them are like really hard. Um, so there's a lot of commentaries on it. Uh, and then but from the mother load of books that came from Egypt in the Sunset al Turat al Azhariin that I was talking about yesterday, there's another one too. Sheikh Abdullah Shaqawi, who was Sheikh al Azhar in the past, Rahimahullah. There's countless commentaries on the Hikam. Um, so, which is important because that shows that it was a book that was accepted by the ulama. Okay, because if you go online right now and you and you search for Ibn Atala in the Hikam, you're going to find a bunch of articles translated into English bashing the book and saying that the author committed bid'ah and committed shirk and did all of these kind of things and so on and so forth and then this and that and whatever. And then you're going to pick this and you're going to pick up this and be like, well, there's like. The other one that I had, it listed... Oh, here, there's one here. Like here, just in this book, they're just, you know, probably keeping it pretty simple. There's 33 commentaries that are mentioned here of different ulama that did commentaries on the hikam. And then there's eight works that are mentioned that turned it into poetry form so that you could memorize it. So that, that's like, that's not common for that many, that many works, that many commentaries to be written, that many works of, of abridgment to be written. Uh, and the people who wrote these commentaries were not small people, you know. Um, so, yeah, maybe, I, I think a lot of times what happens, especially in books of spirituality, is that if you read the book assuming that the people who are teaching it have incorrect aqidah, then you find all kinds of things in it that you think are, oh my God, it's a suspect or whatever. But if you read it assuming, no, these were people of knowledge and they know that Allah is God and that the Prophet ﷺ is the Prophet of God and like they know Aqidah, then, and you read it in that light, then you, then you understand it and you interpret it in a light that's acceptable and it's like not a problem. But it's kind of like depends on uh, what you think about the author, which is generally also a principle of study is that if you don't have husnadhan, if you don't think well of the author, then it's going to be very, very difficult to benefit from the person. You know, so um, that's why I'm spending so much time mentioning this right now. 
but it's not a book that we can leave just because some people didn't understand it and felt that they should uh, speak out about it or whatever you know uh, it's 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 really important work. Um Bismillah. We'll stop there. The commentaries of the beginning, and we'll get into the book. Or we'll get into the muqaddimah. Let's read the muqaddimah, the introduction of the of the commentator. Inshallah. Um. Basically he's praising Allah and sending prayers on the Prophet but doing it in a way that kind of like plays on the words of the topic is usually what they'll do. وَبَعَدْ فَيَقُولُ أَفْقُرُ الْعِبَادِ إِلَى مَوْلَاهُ أَنْ غَنِي عَبْدًا مَجِيرِ الشُّرْنُوبِ الْأَزْهَرِ بَلَّغَهُ اللَّهِ الْأَمَلِ وَوَفَّقَهُ لِصَانِحِ الْعَمَلِ أَمِينَ So he calls himself the author, the sharih, the commentator, refers to himself. He says, أَفْقَرُ uh, الْعِبَادِ That the, the most in need of their Lord from the servants of God. Uh, and then he refers to Allah as an ghani. So he's Afqar al-Ibad and Allah is an ghani He's the one who's most in need of all of the servants of Allah For Allah's mercy And Allah is an ghani, the one who is not in need of anything Subhanahu wa ta'ala He said لَمَّا كَانَتْ حِكُمُ السَّيِّرِ السَّرِيِّ الْعَارِفِ بِاللَّهِ تَعَالَى سَيِّرِ أَحْمَدِ بِنْ مُحَمَدِ بِنْ عَبْدِ الْكَنِيمِ بِنْ عَبْدِ الْعَطَاءَ لَا سَكَنْدَرِي مَنْ أَنْفَعِ مَا يَتَوَصَلُ بِهِ الْمُرِيدُ إِلَى مَعْرِفِتِ تَرِيقِ الْعَارِفِينَ الْمُوصِلَةِ إِلَى ذِي الْعَرْشِ الْمَجِيدِ اجْتِمَالِهَا عَلَى دِقَائِقِ التَّوْحِيدِ الْمُنِيفَةِ مَعَ اخْتِصَارِ عِبَارَاتِهَا الرَّائِقَةِ الْلَطِيفَةِ أَرَدْتُ أَنْ أَشْرَحَهَا بِشَرْحٍ وَسَطٍ خَالٍ مِنْ التَّطْوِيلِ وَاللَّغَطِ يَرَاهُ النَّاظِرُ لَهَا كَالْمِصْبَاحِ وَيَتَحَقِّقُ أَنَّهُ ثَمَرَةُ مَا غَرَسَهُ الشَّرَّاحُ فَإِنِّي دَخَلْتُ بُسْتَانَ الْعَارِفِينَ الْأَعْلَامِ وَاجْتَنَيْتُ يَانِ الْتَمَرَاتِ مِنْ حَدَائِقِ الْأَفْهَامِ وَقَرَّبْتُ لِلْجَانِ الْجَنَى وَرَجَوْتُ مِنَ اللَّهِ بُنُوغَ الْمُنَى مَعَ اعْتِرَافِ بِأَنَّ بَاعِي قَصِيرٌ وَذِهْنِي كَنِيلٌ لَكِنْ أَرَدْتُ تَشَبُّهَا بِهَؤُلَاءِ السَّادَةِ عَلَى حَدِّ مَا قِيلٌ So you notice it rhymes a little bit. So he says when the when uh, when it became such as the case that became that Ibn Atta'ala's wisdoms they became known as like something that is very important for the seeker of God and their and their getting to know God in a deeper way it became known that these are extremely important because of how they give us a deep understanding of what tawhid actually is and that's actually what they say about this book is that this book gives you what Tawheed actually is. Like, what does it really mean to believe in the oneness of Allah? And uh, the interesting thing is that he was a student of Abu al-Abbas al-Mursi, rahimahullah ta'ala. And the other person who was a student of Abu al-Abbas is al-Busiri. I've mentioned this before here. Al-Busiri who wrote the Burda. So the busiri he wrote the Burda, gives you deep understanding of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Ibn Atta'ala wrote the Hikam gives you deep understanding of Allah. So between the two students of Abul Abbas, you have the two sides of the Shahada. I mean, it's remarkable. And uh, so he says, because the Hikam are, are they give you taqa'iqit tawheed, they give you the details of tawheed and what it really is, um, then people really, in, in like very clear and simple statements that are short, 
then you know it became very famous so I wanted to write a commentary on it that wasn't too long he says I wanted to write a commentary that wasn't too long you can tell this is pretty actually short there's like 260 something I think 265 Hickam um, something like that so uh, you know this is not that long of a commentary so I didn't want to write that long of one so that people can use it as a lamp that guides them and that they can know and that they should know that whatever he's saying he took it from all of the other commentaries that were written so he's not just like making up his own thing he's basing it on the previous commentaries he says because I entered into the gardens of the righteous scholars and I took the I took the fruits from the trees that they had planted and I'm bringing it here and presenting it to you so that you can benefit from it uh, and I hope that Allah will allow me to do it and he's like and I recognize that me myself my capacity is very limited and my intellect is very uh, weak but I wanted to be like the righteous people that came before me. <laughs> so this is his introduction, right? And he's like, uh, you know, uh, actually, the book that I had brought last night on the 40 hadith, and I said I wanted to bring it because we're doing the 40 hadith, but this brother brought the books, and it's his commentary, actually, Sheikh Abdul Majid al-Shunubi. So we're two days in a row now with uh, Sheikh Abdul Majid, rahimahullah ta'ala. So he says, I just wanted to be like the great people who came before me. Then he recites the poem. It's a very famous poem. Or uh, the other version is Basically says, copy and imitate the best of people if you can't be like them yourselves. At least copy those who are great. Because copying and imitating the best of like what we have is in itself a form of success. So like yeah, he's saying, I'm not like them, these amazing people that wrote these commentaries, and I'm not like Ibn Atta'ala, but they love this book, and you know I just want to be like them, so I'm going to try to be like them, and I'll write whatever's in their commentaries, and I'll make it simple for you so that you can benefit. That's what he's saying. Rahimahullah uh, ta'ala. Oh, it's right here. It's... Um, 264 wisdoms after the wisdoms actually though he has a section on like short essays I guess you can say or like small pieces of reflection that often are kind of like tie it's almost like a summary of the hikam it tie but it's like prose form instead of wisdom after wisdom after wisdom and then there's a section after that that's on munajat like calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you can use in dua and stuff uh, so he says that he's going to do this in order to give the commentary, so on and so forth, like I said. Um, there's a line in here that I really liked. He says, And I did all of this. He says, I did all of this just hoping to be part of the people who had commented on this text before and that Allah would write me as those who have served this text and served the amazing author who wrote this text. And uh, he's well known for his blessings and how great of a person he was. And many of the people of Azhar were given their openings, openings in their relationship with Allah through th through the blessing of of this man's work, basically of Ibn Atta'ala's work. So may Allah make us from them, inshallah. I mean, uh, 
then he gives a little bit of the biography that we already talked about. Okay. Let's see. He says, know that hikam is the plural of hikmah. And the hikmah is any statement from which you take benefit. Any statement from which you take benefit. It's a wisdom, right? Like anything that you take benefit from, it's a wisdom. You took some benefit from it. وَقَالَ الْعَلَّامَ الْأَمِيرِ الْحِكْمُ جَمْعُ حِكْمَةً وَهِيَ الْعِلْمُ النَّافِعِ وَلَيْسَ ذَلِكَ إِلَّا عِلْمَ الشَّرِيعَةِ إِشَّامِ الْفِقْهِ وَالتَّوْحِيلِ وَالتَّصَوُّفِ فَلَكِنْ لَمَّا كَانَ عِلْمَ التَّصَوُّفِ هُوَ الْعِلْمُ الْبَاحِثُ عَنْ تَهْذِيبِ النَّفْسِ وَتَصْفِيَتِهَا مِنَ الصِّفَاتِ الْمَذْمُومَةِ وَالتَّنْبِيهِ عَلَى مَا يَعْرِضُ لِلْعِبَادَاتِ وَالْمُعَامَلَاتِ مِنَ الْآفَاتِ الْمُهَلِّكَةِ كَالْكِبْرِ وَالرِّيَاءِ وَالْعُجْبِ وَتَعْرِيفِ الطُّرُقِ الْمُخَلِّصَةِ مِنْ ذَلِكَ كَانَ أَنْفَعَ الْعُلُومِ فَخُصَّ بِاسْمِ الْحِكْمَةِ Interesting. So he says, the hikam, then another person said, Al-Alama Al-Amir, he said that the hikam, hikmah is any beneficial knowledge. Beneficial knowledge. Ilmun nafi'ah. He said, and that beneficial knowledge is the knowledge of the sharia as encompassed by aqidah and fiqh and tasawwuf that we mentioned in the beginning. Then he said, but because the knowledge of tasawwuf is the knowledge that helps the person to purify their heart and to rectify themselves and to get rid of the bad qualities and to beware of the things that can infect their acts of worship and, their and can infect their day-to-day -day interactions and thereby take away the reward from them, then tasawwuf actually became the most important of those knowledges because by it, everything else becomes sound. Whereas without it, everything else is going to be uh, corrupted. And he says, and because of that, then it was given the name hikam. That it's, it's, it's the science of like the true wisdom of how does one, you know, make everything else right. هذا أوان الشروع في المقصود فأقول متوسل في القبول بحبيب الملك المعبود. قال العارف رضي الله عنه. And then he continues. He says, so now is the time to begin. And I say, seeking aid uh, by the rank of the Prophet them the following. He makes tawassul. Maybe we'll do a book on that another time. So now you're in the first hikmah. First hikmah of his hikam. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A couple disclaimers before we start. Number one, I am making zero claim to having any sort of experiential understanding of the reality of these things. I'm merely explaining what he said. Okay? Don't think that just because I'm teaching this book, I have any claim to the realities of this book. I'm just teaching it because I think that having an understanding of these things is important to how we look at our religion and how we look at our relationship with God. Uh, that's number one. Number two is, uh, if you're really trying to do these things, um, you don't really have to go past one or two of them. Maybe three or four if you're really good. Maybe more if you're amazing. But these first couple of the hikam, I've pretty much spent the last... Hmm, what year are we in? 2020? Like probably like the last 10 years of my life on. I haven't escaped from the, la from the first four or five of them. So, but nonetheless, it's important to read the other ones just so we're aware of them. But there's a difference between, like Imam al-Ghazali talked about how you can have various types of readings of the Qur'an. Like you have one reading of the Qur'an, you finish it every 30 days because you want to do the khatam. 
When you have one reading of the Quran, you finish it every three, four months. Like you have one reading of the Quran, you finish it every year. Because you're reading at a deeper level, right? He says, you have one reading of the Qur'an, you finish it your whole life. <laughs> so, we read through it and then know that like, even if we get past it, like don't forget the first ones. Because sometimes it's just like remembering the first ones that uh, is sufficient for us. The first... Like actually doing it. Actually remembering it when you need to remember it. Actually... Like it actually settling and changing the way that I look at things and the way that I do things and the way that I think about things, the decisions that I make, so on and so forth. That's what I mean by actually doing them. So you might get, you know, maybe you won't feel that way. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, I get it. Alhamdulillah. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Don't forget us when you get to paradise, inshallah. Uh, number one, he says, that from the sign that one has depended upon their deeds is that they lose hope when they slip from the sign that one has depended upon their deeds is that they lose hope when they slip. So especially in the early ones, we have to take some time to give a lot of commentary to break down certain terms and concepts and understanding and so on. So what is he trying to do here? He's trying to say, what is one of the major issues of Tawheed? One of the major issues of Tawheed is to have utter and complete dependence upon Allah. To have complete i'timad or complete tawakkul on Allah. Not on my deeds, not on other people, not on my popularity, not on whatever it might be, my eloquence. I don't have any, I have to remove my dependence on all of those things and make sure that my dependence is on Allah. Okay, so this is where he's saying, but, but the reality of that is that uh, most of the people are going to have some level of dependence on their deeds. So, you know, in the sense that, but then you're going to be like, so when do I know or not? This is why <coughs> he's, he's interesting. So, w when do you know or not? You know when you lose hope if you make a mistake. You lose hope if you make a mistake. He said, this is the sign that your dependence was on your deeds. Okay. <laughs> it's really tricky because we have to actually do things, right? The goal is to get to the point where you're actually doing something while not depending on that thing that you're doing. A, a, a big reminder for that, a big uh, kind of like key for that would be the statement of Bismillah. Right? So like if one is in the habit of saying Bismillah when they do things, then that's going to remind them that I'm doing what I need to do because Allah has commanded me to take the necessary steps in life. And I'm doing this bismillah. I'm not doing this bismi quwwati or bismi dhaka'i or bismi whatever it might be. I'm doing it in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, I thought it was cool in, uh, in Artugrul, whenever Artukbay, who's one of my favorite characters in the series, um, Artukbay, whenever he's treating people, he's the doctor, 
he's always saying ya shafi ya shafi ya shafi like even Artagul when he's uh, like taking arrows out of people or doing whatever he's doing he's always saying whenever they're doing anything they're saying ya shafi oh, oh you who heals oh you who heals when they're doing the medical treatment right so they're doing it because you have to do it but they're doing it with knowing that Allah is the creator of everything you know so how do you know you if you lose hope then that's your sign that your 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 uh, dependency was actually on the deed. It was on the deed, and it wasn't on Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in the way that it should have been. So, uh, obviously, the caveat with this is that it shouldn't be a means for being just like sloppy about the way that you do things, right? Like you do things the way that they're supposed to be done, and then after, it's the whole thing. You leave the results to Allah, right? You do what you're supposed to do. Leave the results to Allah. So if I'm truly leaving the results to Allah, then I'm not going to get upset about it. And um, if I made a mistake, I'm not going to get like so down about it, you know. <coughs> like maybe you prepare, say you're going to teach a class. You prepare, you prepare, you prepare, you're ready. You go and you teach the class. You realize afterwards you said something that was really wrong. Like, yeah, you're going to fix your mistake and everything else, but you're not going to be like, oh, I'm never going to teach again. If you say, I'm never going to teach again, I can't teach again, I don't have any this and that, you start giving up, you start feeling like, oh, I'm so down, and this, nuqsan uh, al-rajat, all of your hope is gone, then that means you were, you were actually, your dependency was on your preparation. <coughs> your dependency wasn't on Allah. Because if it's on Allah, you already know. You go back to Allah, you ask Allah's forgiveness, it's done. You rectify whatever you need to rectify, ask Allah's forgiveness, and you keep it going. So, this one is like... Uh, you know, take some time. Take some time. Uh, and it takes some reflection. You know. Uh, is, there, is there a difference between saying um, depending on those states versus depending on how is that essentially kind of recreating those two statements? What do you mean? Say the, say the last part again. The hikmah is saying? The hikmah is from the sign that one has depended on their deeds. So, so in this example, you're, you, you're kind of mentioning, you're mentioning depending on Allah. So I'm just making sure, are we equating those two statements depending on what deeds, on, on what deeds is like, are we, is that the same thing as, as depending on Allah? No, they're opposites. So you're not supposed to be depending on the deeds. So, because you're supposed to be depending on Allah. So, how do you know what was it? Where was I putting my trust? Was I putting my trust in what I was doing, or was I putting my trust in Allah? That's that's like the question that he's getting at. So, when you say the sign that one is depending on their deeds is that they lose hope when they make a mistake, is that okay? That's because they weren't supposed to be doing that. So, we have to make this. Uh, actually, several of the early ones are like that. Like you have to, so he's talking about this. Why is he talking about that? He's talking about that because he's trying to get you to the other thing. You know, um, does that? Yes. Yeah, so they're, they're, op which is they're, very they're, they're opposites. <laughs> yeah, they're opposites. So, I mean, I don't know if you could say they're opposites, but they're not. They're 
maybe that's not the correct term for it. There's a whole thing in logic about that, like opposites versus contraries and stuff like that. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not the same. They're, you're supposed to be re relying on Allah, not on your deeds, uh, while doing those deeds, right? But the reliance is on Allah. So um, let me see if he says anything in the commentary that I want to mention. So oftentimes what they'll do in the commentaries and stuff, which we probably won't get into that much, except in some cases, is they'll make distinctions between different people. Like there's the Sanikun, which are the people who are still like struggling and journeying in their relationship with Allah. And then there's the Arifun, who are the people who like really know Allah. So it'll mean one thing to the Arif and it'll mean something else to the Sadiq. We're not going to get into all that stuff. It's none, I mean, if we're Arifun, then alhamdulillah, just go in the other room and pray for us. Uh, but I, I think, you know, most of us are probably in the other, other category. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, they should just, uh, that's how we know. I can say for sure that there's been a lot of times where um, they're like, oh, I'm overly down about this. You know, even I was, uh, and it's not always that it's even our fault. Like there are forces in the in the world that aren't forces that we control, like other people's envy and their hesed and ayn and like this and that and all kinds of other. Sometimes there's qadr that might not be in the way that we thought it was going to be or whatever it might be like. So I really have to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm not depending on those deeds. And I think that this particular hikmah is especially difficult for Americans because we're exceptionally uh, particular about our tartib, <laughs> you know, our organization. And we're going to do this. Like y you'll talk to people and, and, and a lot of times their parents raise them that way, right? That what we're going to do here is you're going to go to school and you're going to get straight A's and you're going to do these extracurricular activities and this and this and this and then you're going to apply for this college and you're going to get into that college. You're going to finish in this year. You're going to finish all of the courses on time and all of them you're going to do well in and you're going to pass this exam and that exam and then you're going to apply for medical school. Then you're going to defer it for one year so that you can do this and this and this and this and then that and then you're going to go to medical school. It's going to take you this many years and then you're going to do your residency. Like everything's planned out. Then at that point, one year before you finish your thing then that's when you can get married but don't think about getting married before that and then three years after that you'll be able to pay back your bills and get married and like you buy the house finally and like they, everything is laid out and then if any of those things don't go the way that the person wanted it to do it goes like the end of the world and this is a disaster we're so like particular about how everything is supposed to happen no it's not going to happen that way I'm sorry like it's just it's not and especially if your parents are immigrants you should know I don't know how it's the case that immigrants, they sh they're the ones that should know it's not going to go the way that you planned it to go. Because that probably wasn't their plan. When they were growing up, that probably wasn't the plan that their parents gave them. You know, like, you're six now, but when you're 12, you're going to move to America. And you're going to go to a school, and you're going to learn English, and you're going to get picked on and bullied. But you're going to do it anyways. <laughs> like, that's probably not what their parents told them, right? And yet, they want to, like, do the same thing. It just doesn't work that way. So... How does one like face the inevitable changes and uncertainties of our existence is there is me and there is Allah and there is Allah's creation and there is what Allah has asked me to do and I'm going to do those things and I'm going to think well of Allah 
and I'm going to hope for good and I'm going to do what I can and if I get good in this dunya alhamdulillah and if I face some difficulties alhamdulillah and eventually it's all going back to him subhanahu wa ta'ala so I want to make sure that my dependence is on him it's not on these deeds it's a lot harder than it sounds anyone think it sounds easy alhamdulillah okay good I would if if it is then we need to if it sounds easy to you please tell me because we need to hang out and like need to learn from you inshallah Okay, okay. Meshi, we're going to keep going. Number two. Uh, number two. Because this is going to be short commentary. We're not going to do a all life commentary on this one. This is like the introductory commentary. This one, the. Number two is the story of my life. Iradatuka tajreed ma iqamatillahi yaka fil asbab ma minishahwatin khafiya. Wa iradatuka el asbab ma iqamatillahi yaka fil tajreed in hitatun an in himmetil aliya. He said, Rahimahullah ta'ala. So if before I say that, uh, I need to define some things. Tajdeed, we need to talk about tajdeed and asbab. So tajdeed and asbab. So uh, tajdeed uh, is literally to kind of like remove things from something else. Okay. So like if you were to, if you had a wire and you wanted to strip the wire, you would do tajdeed of the wire. Um, they talk about the idea of tajreed and niyyah, for example. Like, you might have all kinds of reasons why you want to do something, and you want to really narrow those down to like focus on Allah, or um, uh, you know, you get the idea. It's it's to it's to remove everything else and and singularly focus on one particular thing. In this context, tajreed means to uh, remove oneself from all of the normal distractions of daily life. So I have my life, I have work, and I have family, and I have friends, and I have community, and I have politics, and I have drama, and traffic, and whatever it might be. So tajreed would be to remove the strings of all of those distractions until the point where there's nothing left. You're basically like on your own. So it's to go into a place of isolation or to or to be in a situation of isolation. Sometimes people, they're not in an isolated place, but their life is, it's mujarrad in a sense. Like they don't really have much going on. Maybe they, uh, I knew a, a brother like this. He was like doing really well. He was a chemist and he had some sort of on the job injury. He was a like a perfume chemist high ranking and stuff and then he, he had like an on-the-job industry uh, injury that took away that lessened or took away his sense of smell so they gave him and he was still young then I think he was probably like in his maybe 40s at that point and so they gave him disability like a nice disability from very early 
you know. So he didn't have anything to do. So he was teaching like seven halakhas a week. He was doing his thing, you know. <laughs> like he was, mashallah, serving the community in a very high level because he was fine. He didn't have any worries. Someone else, they might like. Maybe they just inherited money. Maybe they live in a place that doesn't have issues. Whatever it might be. So tajid is to be to take away all of those other distractions. Asbab is to be in the midst of it. Asbab, you're you're in the asbab. The asbab are like the means of of life, right? So you're in the midst of the asbab. Your parents are aging. Your kids are young. You have work to do. You have organizations. You have this. You have that. You have whatever. You're in the middle of the asbab. So now, what is he saying? <coughs> and then the other thing that he talks about here is iqamatillah, that Allah has, and Allah has placed you somewhere. Okay, so you have one side which is, which is tajreed, you have the other side which is asbab, and you have somewhere in the spectrum that Allah has placed you. Whatever the situation might be, right? So he says, for you to want tajreed. When Allah has put you in the midst of the asbab, okay, following the words, it's easier if I don't have to translate them all the time. Uh, so, for you to want tajreed, when Allah has put you in the midst of the asbab, is a uh, it's a subtle shahwa, it's a subtle desire. There's 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 a it's a little bit of nafs that's involved, and for you to want the asbab. When Allah has put you in tajreed Is a coming down from lofty aspirations So what is this all ref getting at basically All of this section This first like 15, 16 hikam They all relate to deeds And how we understand deeds and stuff like that Amal So he says basically Allah has put you somewhere If Allah has put you somewhere Your job is To fulfill the obligation of that thing That Allah has put you in until Allah puts you somewhere else And when He puts you somewhere else then Alhamdulillah He puts you somewhere else And that doesn't mean that you don't look for things Or whatever it might be But it's like You have obligations that are in front of you You do those ones And you don't try to leave them Until your situation changes When your situation changes Your situation changed God this is a good one to read today Told you I've been in these for the last 10 years I'm on number 2 today yeah, I know. But you can't leave till Allah le moves you. Uh, so, you can't go. It's not even the elementary school kids. It's like when things go crazy with the asbab. My thing that I do recently in the last year or two is I just watch I watch old videos from the eighties about Newfoundland, where my mom's from, because there's like nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing Like I can just Take a little bit Go Get a little place You know Sit there Stare out the window No more asbab You know Just like be done Wait for death to come <laughs> you know? That's like But But that's not what I'm in Right That's not It's not where you are And the thing about this Is what he's trying to say Is that it's what in America everyone says, right? The grass is greener on the other side. The grass is always greener on the other side. The grass is always greener on the other side is, is, what, is part of what this hikmah is saying. He's saying is that <coughs> if you are in tajreed and you want to go to asbab, then what you're supposed to do in tajreed is you're supposed to worship. Because you don't have anything else to do. You just worship. 
And what you're supposed to do in asbab is fulfill your obligation. So if Allah puts you in the asbab, you're supposed to just fulfill your obligations. You're not supposed to try to get into the tajreed. Because that's, that's a little bit of your nafs then. And don't think that that, ne- that part of your nafs that makes you want to escape from the things that you have to do, don't think that it's not going to follow you into the tajreed. It's going to follow you over there too. So don't, don't try to escape it. You have, you have work to do on this thing. But, and if you're in the tajreed and you want to go to the asbab, then Allah puts you in a place where you can do like so much. You could just dedicate yourself to Him. And you want to go do other things? That's you, you, you left the lofty aspirations. Okay? And part of what he's getting at is that if you don't figure out how to be okay with where you're at, you're not going to be okay with where you're going. Don't, don't think that it's going to, it's going to change things. Your nafs is still going to be there. All of the issues are still going to be there. And they're just going to follow you and deal with you in different ways. So if we were to be like, like the story of my life is this hikmah right here. And the, I've been really like in the last couple of years really trying to struggle to not blow it on this one. And it seems like I'm always on the brinks of blowing it on this one. But like when we were in Egypt, there was some point when we were in Egypt where you're tired of studying. You're like, what am I doing? I'm just sitting here. I'm studying. I'm not dealing with people. I'm not helping people. I want to go back and like serve and help the people and teach them and so on and so forth. And what is that? That's you're in Tajreed and you want to go to Asbab. Because when you were studying, you didn't have anything to do. No obligations. No family. No children. Finances were taken care of. Literally don't have anything to do. All you do every day is study. Messes you up. Because then that's like what you want to do for the rest of your life. And it's not going to be that way. <laughs> you know? So then you want to leave. Then finally we leave, right? Come back, work in the masjid. What do you think I'm sitting in the masjid thinking every day? God, man, I wish I could go back and study again. And like have the free time to study and be able to read these things. And So, so now you're in the asbab and you want to go to the tajdeed. So and then it's going to switch. Then there's going to be a next. Like the problem is still there. Which is not being okay with maqamuk haythu aqamuk. That your place is where Allah puts you. And when Allah moves you, Allah moved you. So you make a istikhara, you ask Allah to open things up for you, so on and so forth. And then eventually you might move. You might move on to something else. But you're not moving from like the, the nafs is pushing me to do something. Right? Does this make sense? Is it clear? It's a really tough one. Really tough one. Doesn't mean you don't move, but it means like uh, you you don't just do whatever you want because you feel like it. You, you do what's what's needed in that time and the responsibility of that time, which is wajib al waqt, which the people of spirituality always talk about. Right? You have to do wajib al waqt. You have to do the obligation of the moment, not the one before it, not the one after it, not anything else. What's the obligation of the moment? Number three. Oh, he says in the end of this commentary of number two, he says, فَكُونْ حَيْثُ أَقَامَكَ اللَّهُ الْفَضْلُ الْعَظِيمُ وَعَلَامَةُ الْإِقَامَةِ حُسُولُ الْإِسْتِقَامَةِ وَتَيْسِيرُ الْأَسْبَابِ مِنُ الْكَرِيمُ الْوَحَابِ He says, so be where Allah puts you. And the sign that you are where Allah puts you is that you attain this steadfastness and whatever it is that you're doing. And the means that you have to work with become facilitated. So now that's where you're supposed to be. 
if the situation that you're in becomes untenable, you know, maybe the work that you have is not paying your bills, you're being oppressed in your job, whatever it might be. That doesn't mean like, okay, I have to stay here until Allah moves me. No, that's a sign that it's time for you to go do something else and look for something else and whatever it might be. Yeah. Number three, You'll see how they're all related. So it says that lofty aspirations do not pierce the veils of destiny or the walls of destiny. Yeah. Lofty aspirations don't pierce the gates of destiny. We'll put it that way. The gates of destiny. So what is he saying? He's saying that there are aqdar. There are things that are qadr. There are decrees. Allah has His decree in the world. And there's various types of that. I mentioned two of them that are related to what we'll say here. One of them are decrees that relate to the ways that things are customarily accomplished. They say, for example, that it's bad adab. To we know that Allah can break the norm of existence, right? Like, there's norms in existence. We know that Allah can break the norm. But they say that it's bad adab to make dua for things that break the norm without, like, some sort of serious reason behind it. So you don't say, Oh Allah, just give me the entire Qur'an in my memory tomorrow. Allah, I want this from you. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, I've been praying all night. Ya Allah, al-Fatiha, give me the Qur'an in one night. Ya Allah. It's bad adab. And you don't memorize anything. You don't review anything. Like, you put no, in, you put no work in at all and it's like the same thing that people do with exams they, they're lazy and they go in the library and they talk to each other and they have fun and they do this and they make phone calls and they're on their phone and everything else and then they come in the middle of the night before the exam they're like Ya Allah help me in the exam Ya Allah Ya Allah and they come afterwards and they fail the exam and they're like I'll keep making dua to Allah and then he's not answering my dua Tawbah what do you say he's not answering your dua they're like so illat adab you know such bad manners with Allah so he says that the number one is there's ways that things work in the world. You don't just like, just because you want something doesn't mean that you get to skip the way that things work. You know, I really want to be a doctor, but I just don't want to go to medical school. Okay, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> I really want to, uh, I really want to have a house one day, but I just don't want to save money, you know. It's probably not going to happen unless you inherit something or like, you know, some something might happen, but it's, you know, that's not normally the way that things are going to happen. Uh, I really want to learn, but I just, I don't like to read. Probably going to have to figure out how to read. I mean, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in life like that. And I feel like, especially younger people now, this is a big issue. Like, they want everything, but they don't want to do it, you know. I want this, I want this, I don't like this, I want to do something bad. Why am I doing so bad in class? Because like, you didn't do your homework. What do you want me to tell you? <laughs> like, you got a bad grade because you didn't do your work. It's very simple. It's n there's not like a, there's not some sort of complicated math to it, you know. But this is an issue across the board. This is one type of qadr that Allah has decreed that things will run a certain way in the world. He can break that order if he wants, but don't like think that just you having high aspirations is going to be enough to overcome it, right? Number two is 
you might still, there might be a decree, even still, that you did what you were supposed to do, and it just wasn't the decree. It's a different category, right? Different category. You did what you were supposed to do, and it wasn't the decree. And it doesn't matter how much you want it. You can bang your, bang your head on the walls of Qadr from now until you die. It's not going to change it. Because if it's the Qadr, it's the Qadr. Not, you, there's nothing you can do. Um, and this one too, like in our lives, we see a lot of examples of this. Uh, and oftentimes things that we look at as being like, you know, things that we didn't expect or we weren't hoping for, we didn't like or whatever it might be. They are things that in the aftermath, you, we realize the wisdom in them. We realize what we benefited from it, so on and so forth. So then the difficulty is when it's actually happening, how do I maintain the obligations and have patience and do what I'm supposed to do and so on and so forth, which is relates to the hikmah before it, right? So, for example, I'll give you the example that I always give from my personal life, which was college. That on paper... Everything and more was done such that I should have got into UCLA. And that was like the thing that me and my friend that I grew up with, we're going to both go to UCLA, we're going to do our thing and whatever. And, you know, he had like his 5.0 and I had my whatever it was, 4.6 or something. And then, you know, this SATs were really high and sports and every like everything was there. And this was also, by the way, in our time it was much easier to get into UCLA and UCSD and stuff like that. Like that was a big... What we had on paper was a big deal then. Now it's like, it's pretty good, but it's not crazy. Um, but like in the end, it comes the results come back and he gets into UCLA. I don't get into UCLA. A bunch of other people got into UCLA that like really on paper, there was no reason why they should have gotten into UCLA and so on and so forth, but I didn't get in. So I have to go to UCSD. Uh, had I gone to UCLA, my life probably would have been a mess been like a horrible terrible mess it was a big it was the biggest disaster that you know didn't get into ucla i don't get to go to poly pavilion like poly pavilion is basketball you know like it's everything and you know i probably would have ended up like mm, my colleagues who were you know basically what successful people in america do have mental health issues use substances, make a lot of money, live sad lives, <laughs> move on. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty much like probably what my category of people would have done. And I got into UCSD and I had to go to UCSD then because like that was the next best school. You're not going to go somewhere else. So I went to UCSD and then I had to be away from home. That had its own thing. I had to be away from the, my best friend that I grew up with. That would have been like we would have made all our choices together. Um, met the Muslims, became a Muslim, like lived in San like everything. Everything in my life is everything after that issue is based on that issue of which school I went to. But you're like, okay, no matter what the aspiration was, there was a qadr that that wasn't that wasn't what was going to happen. And there's many things like that. Like there's a qadr, for example, in in Egypt, there was a qadr. You know, every single year that we were, most of the years we were in Egypt, we wanted to leave. It's 
So we're like, man, I can't stand this place. It's crazy. It's all this oppression everywhere. People are so poor. Nothing's organized. Nobody finishes anything. <laughs> like, you sit with the sheikh, you never get past the first 20 pages. You know, it's like everything. Because it's not their fault. It's because life is like that in Cairo. Everyone's poor. The ulama are poor too. Some of them are living in, like, the worst neighborhoods you can even imagine. And they're coming to teach, but then, like, they get an opportunity to make a few bucks and they'll go do something else. You know, like, nothing is uh, stable. So... Every year we're like, man, we should leave this place. Okay, let's look at what options you have, so on and so forth. Make du'a, make istikhara. And every year the istikhara was like, nope, can't leave. Got to stay here. Up until the time, like, only recently that I, I really feel like, alhamdulillah, that I was in Egypt. Alhamdulillah, that I was in Azhar. Alhamdulillah, that, that, was the tra- that that's the portion of the tradition that I was exposed to. Alhamdulillah that I can actually claim some sort of affiliation to that. Like these are great, huge blessings in my life. But every year that I was in the middle of it, I was like, man, I need to get out of this place. You know. So, but the qadr was still there. Like, no, you're not supposed to get out of this place. <laughs> like, okay, I'm stuck. So, how do we maintain adab in it? That's a big part of it. You know, that's that's what comes the two before it. Two before it also are speaking about this one. So we'll stop here inshallah next week we'll continue with number 4 Wassallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin Barakallahu fikum any comments or observations uh, questions clarifications Yes What is the difference or distinction at least personally if you do stick in relation to So they make a mistake. I think we can start with the way you worded that at the end, just to be nitpicky. They make a mistake that impedes their path to Allah. Uh, they made a mistake that doesn't impede their path to Allah, right? And I think that's uh, you know part of the path to Allah is to get over oneself, and part of the reason why we get overwhelmed with a lot of these things is because it's still about ourself. But if it's about Allah, then you realize like, okay, I made a mistake and and I regret that mistake. Like I really do. It was a mistake and I regret it and that regret is a condition for the Tawbah and I'm going to make Tawbah and I'm going to do everything that I have to do there with not returning to it and and intending not to go back to it and rectifying whatever situation that I had might have caused everything else that you have to do in Toba, and I'm not going to lose hope because that's the way that it was supposed to go and that's inevitably part of the part of the whole thing is that I'm going to make these mistakes and I'm going to go over it and I'm going to say to myself how many times am I going to make the same mistake over and over and over and over and over again and Allah is saying like you're going to make the same mistake until you learn that lesson <laughs> so I'm not going to lose hope I'm just going to keep doing it I'm gonna keep doing it keep doing it keep doing it so, does that clarify somewhat? I guess personally, sometimes if you do feel that guilt, I guess about the repetition of making a mistake. Yeah. Sometimes it might get to a point where you do find yourself losing hope mm-hmm. in your ability to overcome it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
You might lose hope in your ability to come overcome it, but you don't lose hope in Allah. Right? <laughs> and and in the end it is la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. You know, it is la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. That there's no might or power with Allah. Eventually you come to the point you're like, Allah, I'm I don't know, I keep doing this thing. I don't know how I'm gonna get out of it. That's actually usually a good point to get to. Because then it's like the whole thing is turned over to Allah. And at that point you're like and I'm still and I don't know how I'm gonna do it. And if I if I make the mistake again, I'm not going to be surprised. But Allah, you told me that I shouldn't do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again. So now my entire thing is on Allah, right? Rabbi inni lima min khairin faqir. My Lord, I am deeply in need of any good that you might give me. You know, whatever you have for me, Allah, I'll take it. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, sometimes we do. Like I don't. Unless I'm still looking at myself. It's the du'a of Musa, right? This is the du'a of Musa. Yeah. One of the stops on Israel and Mirage. Hmm. Yeah, and then. Uh, Yamal, you're going to say something? Yeah, um, 